Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. is playing for the national title. It's too long and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Sports Illustrated Fan Nation Network, with episode 95 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast presented by Bet Online. In this episode, Josh Griffin and Sydney are here to discuss Syracuse men's basketball's wins over Cornell and Georgetown, Syracuse women's basketball's 8-1 start, and a little bit off topic, we will discuss something that's been a hot topic across the sports world, the ending to the Buffalo Bills-Kansas City Chiefs football game, as well as the reaction from Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Bet online remains your top spot for all your live betting action and contests. NFL, college football, UFC, and NHL are all in full swing. Bet online is your number one source for your wagering news, odds, trends, and predictions with both desktop and mobile access at any time. Head to Bet Online today and use your promo code Believe B L E A V for your fifty percent welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. Basketball season is in full swing, and so I have Sydney Griffin and Josh here with me to discuss Syracuse men's and women's basketball. We are going to start with the men after a shellacking at Virginia. Syracuse has bounced back strong with two impressive wins over Cornell and Georgetown. We're going to go around the room and get everyone's uh, reactions and takeaways from the last two victories for the men. And Sydney, I'm going to start with you. Your uh, main takeaways from Syracuse men's basketball's win over wins over Cornell and Georgetown. Yeah, if you look at the two wins, I mean, obviously the player that has stood out back to back is none other than Judah Mint. Um, but I will say it's been different in each of the games. The other players that stepped up around him. If you look specifically at Cornell with the eighty-one to seventy win, you had players like Chris Bell who. When he's been getting hot from the three-point line, I love how they keep feeding him, and you really start to see this confidence take over. You know, He was second on the team in points, but also it was the first time I felt like Justin Taylor's shot had really been just kind of what I would say watching film from last year when it was at his best. It finally felt like it matched that this season, and I know even having him on uh, my radio talk show the week before, he had been working through a few things, and it felt like it all clicked at the right time. So I was excited to see some other players step up. I think if you look at overall both of these games where Minsk gets all of his points is that he's so talented in the one-on-one matchups. But in order to get guys like Bell and Taylor, you know, and plenty of others points, it has to come off of offensive scheming and plays. And so I think Syracuse is starting to find a little bit of that balance, the difference between how Minsk scores and how the others do. Um, and then if you look at Georgetown, it – it was the first time I really felt like JJ Starling and Mins both had a fantastic night on the same night, which we need more of. And going into that game, even looking at both the starting lineups 
versus Georgetown, you knew it was a big rivalry game and it was going to be very guard heavy. And when Syracuse finally was able to pull away is when they were able to create offensive points off of turnovers. I think they had 14, 15 in the game, which led to around that same number of fast break breaks that they had, which just allowed them to pull away and, and walk away with another big win, their first one on the road in the United States. Griffin, your takeaways from Syracuse's win wins over Cornell and Georgetown. Yeah, when you look at both of them, it's nice to see back-to-back 80-point victories. Granted, Cornell, not the same level of competition. Uh, but regardless, I think they did it in two different ways. The three ball was the main point of emphasis. And against a team like Cornell that really relies on outside shooting, it was nice to see that Syracuse can also start to win in different ways. Uh, shooting over 40% from three, they went 13 for 32 uh, against the Big Red in that game. And like Sydney mentioned, it was a big game for Chris Bell from the three-point line, as well as Judah Mintz, uh, five threes. Uh, that was something that going into the year, a lot of draft scouts were talking about was, yeah, this guy, he can be a first-round pick, but we need to see improved shooting, and, and he's definitely done so so far this season. But then in the Georgetown game, that was a complete team effort because you're on the road against one of your bitter rivals. Granted, it's now two first-year head coaches that are trying to ensue this rivalry again. But what Judah Mintz was able to do in setting the tone early and being a very physical game, getting to the line with ease, it almost opened up everything else for this offense. And having a career day for J.J. Starling that I think we can go back, hopefully later down the line this season, say that was the game when he really started to put everything together, having over 20 points and, and shooting efficient from three as well. He went three from three uh, from three-point range. But I was more impressed of, of what the players off the bench did. Quadir Copeland being that go-to guy, being a scorer. Malik Brown was great defensively and making things very difficult for the Hoyas down low. Even Benny Williams getting over 10 minutes again. Hema, he also played. So it was really nice to see that this team collectively bounce back from a difficult loss to start off conference play and get back on the right track to now be 7-3. and three. Josh, your thoughts? I think for me, y'all talked to, you know about both games, but a lot about the Cornell game. And I've said this on a couple other platforms. Like, you know, that just felt too much like a conference game for a game that was so long, you know, kind of a, almost like a buy win or something that you can kind of use up a tune-up. And um, even that Virginia game, again, you had um, an offensive outburst from a team that's not very explosive offensively. So there wasn't a lot of encouraging signs that would have um, you would have took into the Georgetown contest. You know, that was a good point by you, Griffin, talking about it being two, you know, even being a, such a historic rivalry, two uh, first-year head coaches. And the game kind of reflected that a little bit. But um, for me, it was kind of like the realization of a lot of things. Um, the realization – or not the realization, but the, um, I guess the um, the playing out of things I feel like needed to happen already with this uh, this men's basketball team. Um, um, I was uh, editing while watching this, but – I haven't personally seen Naheem McLeod play in that game. I'm looking at the box score, a grand total of four minutes. So I think with just his ineffectiveness um, between uh, Malik Brown and just kind of going small, honestly, his minutes um, could be minimized. And also, uh, Munir a guy that, you know, was effective in all the spot five minutes that he had last year. Um, you know, coming to play, uh, Kudir Copeland, a guy that had a career high of 14 points. But uh, not even that, just kind of being that glue guy, kind of filling in different roles that needed to be due. Needed to happen, and um, them responding with you know career high twenty five minutes for him, and also um, this team you know taking a I won't say we say decent, but a reasonable amount of threes compared to their you know ability to shoot the ball. 
Um, Chris or Justin didn't really have it going, kind of like in that same way that they did in the Cornell game that Sydney talked about. So they were they limited themselves to only six, uh, you know, six trays. But even just you know five for eleven, you know, obviously I don't think we expect JJ to shoot the ball like that. But after how poor he shot it thus far, kind of was. I guess some correction to the mean type of things, but um, yeah, like Griffin said, you know, Judah Mintz, you know, getting to the paint, being physical, getting to the free throw line, that's his bread and butter, and you know, that bread was butter, and but it wasn't offset by I, I feel like um bad shot selection um with all threes, so very encouraging. Um, I don't know how you know in terms of I guess opponent strength of schedule or quality of opponent, you're putting this Georgetown team closer to LSU in terms of, like, lower, you know, power five teams. But, you know, even, come, again, coming out of the Cornell game or even coming out of the Virginia game where there were, for me, significant struggles in, you know, particular areas I feel like you shouldn't have struggled in, you know, this is probably, um, you know, the best 40 minutes of basketball the team has put together. So that's that's exciting. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why it was the best 40 minutes that they put together was the reason that uh, Sydney hit on, which is, JJ and Judah playing well together and kind of the first time that they had done that all season. And if, if those two are both playing at a high level at the same time, then you figure at least one of the other guys is going to get going offensively. And so then you've got three good options uh, that that should make Syracuse a more dynamic team offensively. But speaking of JJ, you know, Griffin mentioned the fact that he was three for three from three point range. We know that he has really struggled with his outside shot, but over his last three games, he's shooting 55% from three. So is he starting to come around in that? I don't think he expected him to be over 50% for the rest of the season, but just that he can at least be somewhat of a threat out there, which opens up what he's really good at, which is attacking the rim, getting into the lane and making some plays. And then if he and Judah can continue to play off of each other, um, I think we've seen some encouraging things from JJ, who's averaging 15 points per game over his last three. Obviously you guys mentioned Judah. We know how unbelievable he's been the last two games. And, you know, we, we said he can't play like he did against Virginia and have, and Syracuse expect to win. And the last two games, he's, he's done pretty much the opposite of what he did at Virginia. All that said, I can't believe nobody mentioned the dunk by Quadir Copeland. I mean, his putback dunk in the second half, you know, the game was pretty much over at that point, kind of put an exclamation point on it, but he, he just about killed the dude and with that. I mean, you know, I, I tweeted out like, bro, that, that man has a family. I mean, that he put that guy in a poster. That was crazy. Anyone that hasn't seen it, go watch the highlights. It was, it was unbelievable, but he was, he was great. Not only did he score 14 points, but he did, you know, all those other little things that he does as well. He gives you that energy, grabbed four rebounds, had a block and a steal and an assist. Um, if, if he can start doing things like that on a consistent basis, very encouraging sign. You guys mentioned Monir Hima only nine minutes, but in those nine minutes, four points, three rebounds and assist and a block. It, he gave, effort and energy didn't turn the ball over only committed one foul so you know if if Naheem McLeod is going to struggle or has something going on with his foot which coach Autry alluded to after the game and you need to reduce his minutes in some capacity I'd like to see more Munir Hima I think he fits in pretty well with this team with his athleticism I think he and Malik Brown with their ability to run the floor in transition as well can be a really good fit and then my the other takeaway, I think this was the best 40 minutes of defense I've seen this team play. They were locked in defensively, at least from an energy and effort standpoint, most of the game. I know that um I know early in the game Georgetown had some some driving lanes and they got to the hoop a little bit, but that seemed to that seemed to get 
shored up as the game went along. And just a couple of numbers, Georgetown came into the game averaging 79 points a game. Syracuse held them 11 points below that average. They were shooting 39% from three as a team coming into the game. Syracuse held them to 19% from three. They forced 14 turnovers in that game. And when Syracuse really pushed it out of reach or, or really opened up a lead, you know, it was a one-point game at halftime, when they went on that run kind of early to mid-second half, a lot of it was sparked by the fact that they were uh, doing some things differently defensively, especially in the half court, which is they were trapping in the half court, which they hadn't done much this season, if at all. And that led to some turnovers. Judah Mintz played great on ball defense and created a couple of steals that got to some runouts and that allowed Syracuse to open up a, a double digit lead and kind of stayed there for most of the rest of the game. Griffin, you had another thought on Munir Hima. Yeah, I think we Talked about it last week, I believe, but not having a solidified power forward right now, I think that could also change if Hema does get more minutes because then that will make things easier for Malik Brown to maybe slide into that four role, uh, which she probably is going to be better suited at anyway because he is severely undersized as a five man. Uh, so I think like that could be almost better not just on the defensive end of the floor, but give everybody else more spacing on the offensive end too uh, if they decide to go Hema's way. Yeah, and if if McLeod is limited in any way, you know, I'm thinking when they get into conference play, and I'm thinking about going up against the Dukes or the North Carolinas with Amando Baycott, and you know, how is Malik Brown? You know, I I think Malik Brown can give him some problems when he, you know, when when Syracuse has the ball because he he is athletic and quick, and Baycott can tend to struggle with the quicker big men, but uh, Baycott's gonna just bully him around when you know in the post, and, and that's. That's where you'd like to have that balance between him and McLeod. But if McLeod is either ineffective or has an injury or whatever the case is, and you can throw Hema out there at the five, you keep Malik Brown out there because I do think he he gives you some things defensively, just gives you another look. You can go a little bit bigger. Uh, and, and so some more versatility for uh, Adrian Autry to play around with. Let's switch over to the women's team because we haven't really talked about them much at all. And they are eight and one. Their one loss was a two-point loss on the road against a top 20 at the time Maryland team. And that was a game where they actually had a lead in the fourth quarter, uh, let it slip away, but they were that close to being 9-0. and uh, We'll kind of go through some of their recent wins. However, before I do that, I just want to make note. I know, you know, college basketball polls, the AP and the coaches poll and whatever else, all those things, they're very subjective, right? However, Syracuse, not in the most recent poll, but in the poll before that, had they were in others receiving votes, having received two votes. And yet, in this week's poll, they didn't receive any. There were They played in two games between the polls. They won each by at least 20 points. Now, I granted, they were inferior opponents, Northeastern and Ohio, but how do you blow out two teams and go from getting votes to not? It just makes no sense. Like, what else did you want them to do? Win by fifty? I, I, I mean, I don't know. That 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 seemed very odd to me. But either way, um, we'll just kind of go over some of their more impressive wins um, on the season. They they participated in the South Point Thanksgiving Shootout. They went three and zero at that event, including two wins over, or I, I'm sorry, two and zero in that event, including a win over Iowa State. 
a double digit win. Now, Iowa State was only two and three at the time. However, uh, they have won three of their last four games. And their one loss was against fourth ranked Iowa, who was in the national championship game last year and only lost that game by nine points. So very competitive. That was a uh, three point game going into the fourth quarter. So, uh, you know, I think that has a chance to end up being a, a quality win for Syracuse. And then they beat an Alabama team in the dome in the ACC SEC challenge by six points. Alabama is currently 10 and two on the season with the loss to Syracuse and then um, a neutral court loss to Gonzaga, but they're off to a good start this season. So that has a chance to be a good win. Um, you know, I, I've been pretty impressed with them, especially with uh, the way they've rebounded the basketball. I think they significantly improved uh, that area from last year. And defensively, they're forcing nine steals a game. They're, they're getting nine steals a game. They're just relentless on that end of the floor. And we know how good Daisha Fair is. She's averaging 19 points a game, shooting 43% from three, but she doesn't have to score 25, which I think is the big difference this year's team versus last year's team. They have four players averaging in double figures. I think they're off to a really good start. I do think they're a top 25 caliber team. And, uh, you know, looking at the schedule coming up, they've got Cornell and St. Francis. So they should be 10 and one before they have their ACC opener against Notre Dame in the dome, a monster game, top 15 ranked team in the country uh, where they could really make some noise. That will get them ranked if you win that game. Sydney, I'm going to go to you. Your thoughts on Syracuse women's basketball and how they've looked so far this season. I was really fired up that we were talking about this because I think this team is going to have a really successful year. And I think, you know, it's interesting you mentioned with the rankings, but I think how well they played Maryland put them on the map. And the fact that they haven't been as higher profile teams is is why they didn't reserve didn't get votes, but I believe they 100% deserved them. And I think time will come once they get into ACC play, because I think what you said is so perfect. You have a player like Daisha Fair, who is the second you know active scorer in the nation, but she also has the support of Georgia Woolley, who's been fantastic. She's been back. You have Elena Rice, but the player who I've just loved is watching is Alyssa Latham because whether she is in double digit scoring, you talk about their rebounds. She is constantly getting the rebounds offensive, defensively, just getting those second chance shots which has, which has allowed them to be able to put up more points on the board. And not only that, you're seeing other players kind of step up and it feels like each night there's somebody different. If you look at their most recent game, it was Sanaya Wilson who had been having a like a pretty solid season, but this was really her breakout performance. So within the last two games, they've had eight scores and then nine scores. And when you have that many people sharing the wealth and sharing the rock, that makes it very hard to game plan against this team and to defend everybody at once because everyone has a unique way of scoring on this team. And it's working out well for them so far, and I'm really excited once they start getting into ACC play. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, Alyssa Latham. She, during the media days before the season started, called herself a unicorn. She's six foot two freshman, does a little bit of everything, uh, can score from all three levels, and she averages over eight rebounds a game, which leads the team, also averages 11 points a game, also leads the team with two blocks per game. This is a freshman. So I know obviously this is going to be Daisha Fair's last year, 
And so, you know, how do you replace a player of that caliber? Well, with someone like that, because she's going to take on a bigger role as she continues to develop. Uh, she's incredibly talented and has really, really helped take some pressure off of fair. I think uh, on both ends of the floor, Griffin, your thought on Syracuse women's basketball and how they've performed so far this season. I've been extremely impressed. I think that overall, if you want to see exciting basketball and you had the opportunity to see the men's or the women's team play, I don't think it's crazy to say that I would rather watch this women's team play right now. I think they're like, good. The Go Bible, see them. They are so much fun. fun to watch. And if you have not been to a game this year, I mean, I've been to to every single home game so far just because I've, I've been able to cover them a lot. But um, they are so much fun. And they're going to be very good once they get into ACC play. To kind of answer your question earlier, Mike, about them not getting votes so far in the poll, especially after two 20-point wins, I did just do the math. And if you look at some of their non-conference teams that they've played so far, they're not – crazy great competition if you look at lafayette central connecticut cop and state they started three games uh those three to start the year and then the last two against northeastern in ohio those teams have a combined record of 13 and 34 so i'm gonna go out on a limb and say even though they're beating these teams by so much and i understand that reasoning why but i think the national attention right now even though this team is eight and one is they haven't really played anybody since those games in Vegas. That stretch of when they played Maryland, lost by two, then only four days later beating a Northern Iowa team almost by 20 points again, who was in the WNIT last year, that was a huge win. And then the next day when you beat last year a number five seed Iowa State Cyclone team, that's when they started to get on people's radar. Then you have that nice win against Alabama, but now you've had two straight games of inferior competition. So I think their next two games against Cornell and St. Francis, almost the same story in a sense, but it's how they use these games against inferior non-conference opponents to get them ready for a gauntlet of an ACC schedule because they get right out of the gates and you're playing a top 15 ND team and then you're going on the road to play UNC who just cracked the top 25. So there are no breaks early on in their conference schedule. And based on how their trajectory went last season, when they started conference play, it was the opposite. They had some games to warm up before they got into the thick of it. And then we all know what happened first round exit. They probably could have gotten into the tournament last year in an at-large bid if they didn't lose in the first round. So I think how they're, overall schedule is constructed is going to help them because they'll have so much confidence going into that ND and UNC game. Yeah. Good points. Um, as far as the rankings go, um, my, my response to that or counterpoint to that would be, well, then don't put them on one week be, because I, I mean, yeah, they're playing weaker competition. They had played weaker competition, um, but they blew out that weaker competition. So what, how does that drop them off your radar, I guess, is is my point. And the other counterpoint would be there is a team that's ranked in the top 25 that has three losses, Florida State. Florida State, in their three, in two of their three losses, they were blown out. One of those was to an Arkansas team that just lost to Arkansas Pine Bluff. So, And they got blown out at home by that team. So this is part of – because you're still so early in the season, you haven't gotten a conference play – Part of the the reason why this happens is so many people are still beholden to their preseason poll because they don't want to admit they were wrong. So Florida State gets ranked as a top 15 type team early as in the preseason poll, 
And they can lose three games and still be ranked because people are like, well, I have them ranked highly early, so I don't want to drop them too far because then I look like I don't know what I was talking about early in the season, as opposed to just letting it play out and changing. Hey, I was wrong in my preseason poll. Oh, well, Florida State, goodbye. Um, you know, that's that's how I would approach it, but I know that's not reality. And and to their credit, Florida State does have an impressive win over Tennessee from earlier in the season. So we we should make note of that. Um, this this isn't meant to bash Florida State, but simply a comparison um, of, of where Syracuse is. But Syracuse's strength of schedule is certainly much lower at, at this point in the season. Josh, your thoughts on Syracuse women's basketball and where they are at this point in the season? I mean, hey, you're talking about the AP poll rankings. I don't think that, especially with college basketball, like you said, where you have a lot of these voters are beholden to a team that they're covering on a regular basis. Even with us, like we're going to be more knowledgeable, be more in tune to what Syracuse sports are doing in general. So it's just like that bias comes because, yeah, that's, I got to, I got to beef with them anyway. They still have FA, they still have Illinois is ranked over FAU, even though FAU just beat them, and they have Texas a and ranked over Memphis, even though Memphis just beat them at home. So, yeah, no stock in AP poll until after the, tor- the uh, turn of the, the year. But um, Memphis yeah. not being ranked is a joke. Uh, no, as, a, as someone who is an unbiased person, I know you're a, you're a Memphis guy, right? So, like you said, you're familiar with them. You, you know, just like I am with with Philadelphia Eagles, I'm very biased with everything towards them, right? You're biased towards Memphis. I'm an unbiased observer. And there is no reason why Memphis should not be ranked. I, I've only I've only seen two or three of their games, but they look like a good team, and they've had some impressive wins recently, which, in my opinion, should have put them in the rankings. But you know, anyway, oh, rant over. Exactly, like I said. So yeah, they. I try not to get too worked over, too worked up about the AP poll until, like I said, January, February, March, when it becomes actually critical or is more, I guess, um, a more of a has a more full scumbus evaluation of the team. So. But no, kind of like I really like Griffin's point in terms of like the non-conference schedule having not been too tough. You kind of comparing that to the men's team that's already played two rain games, probably a third with Virginia coming up this weekend, or having played Virginia, who probably will be ranked, or I think they already did the new AP polls. But regardless, so it's kind of been yeah, they really do look impressive. Um, it's kind of crazy they've been able to replace the the. Uh, the post player, somebody like Asia Strong and Dariana Lewis with a freshman and a Kyra Woods stepping right in. Shout out Buffalo for Griffin. So I think that's been the biggest thing for me because, yeah, like you said, you got DeAsia Ferry and Georgia Woolley was there last year. But, um, yeah, having um that uh, uh, down low uh, presence, especially for a guard in DeAsia Ferry who's not 5'8", 5'9", not super lengthy, kind of is diminutive even for uh, in the girls' game. So I think that that's been important for, like I said, them cleaning the glass and also just like their versatility that we've been talking to um, in terms of what they're able to do, um, yeah, outside of the edge of fair. So yeah, um, I think that uh, that ND game would do a lot of um uh, telling as well as the UNC game. That'll be more of a true barometer of where we think this team can compete in the ACC. And I think it is important to um, you know, remember that we can come out. You know, I think at this point a split would not be super unreasonable with this, how this team is played. But even if they do end up losing two teams to two ranked ACC opponents, I think it's crucial to you know kind of see. Um, at least the reinforcement of some of these good things that we've seen from this team thus far. Yeah, and I think a split, you'd feel pretty encouraged moving forward if they were able to achieve that. Um, and, you know, Griffin wants to point out that 78% of the team is from the Buffalo-Rochester area, which I, I think is important. Obviously, that goes back that's to... That's a very fil- specific percentage, though. I'm not going to lie. It is, uh, but, you know, that's that's what math does sometimes. So, uh, that's you know, that goes back to Felicia Leggett-Jack bringing, you know, some players over from when she was at UB and she obviously recruits that that area uh, 
recruited it very hard at Buffalo and will continue to at Syracuse. Um, one more point as far as the AP poll goes. I just want to get this out there as well, and then I'll get off my soapbox. North Carolina is six and four. So Syracuse is eight and one. Now, I understand that three of North Carolina's four losses are to ranked teams. They lost to UConn. They lost to um, Kansas State, and they lost to South Carolina. No shame in losing to those teams. But they also lost to Florida Gulf Coast. They also struggled at home with a 500 Vermont team. So, And they have zero impressive wins on the season. Uh, Syracuse's wins over Alabama and Iowa State are better than anything that's on North Carolina's uh, resume right now. So as much as Syracuse's weak non-conference schedule and some of their opponents is a detriment to them being 8-1 and and not getting in the poll, there's no business for North Carolina to still be in there. Now, you can put someone else in instead of Syracuse, but being 6-4 and just because you had them highly ranked to start the season – doesn't mean that at this point with zero impressive wins on their schedule and barely above 500, in my opinion, means they should stay on it. But all Syracuse has to do is keep winning. And if they do, they will find their, themselves into the poll and on the right side of the NCAA tournament bubble, bubble when we do get to March. All of that said, we're going to go a little bit off topic because there's been something that's kind of been making the rounds on social media and been hotly debated and discussed in the sports world, and that is the end of the Buffalo Bills-Kansas City Chiefs NFL football game. Now, for those who didn't see it, the Bills were clinging to, I think it was a three-point lead at that point. Uh, They were up by three points, and Kansas City was trying to drive for either a tying field goal or a potential game-winning touchdown. And it was on second down, I believe, and Mahomes um, threw a pass downfield to Travis Kelsey that would have put them easily in field goal range. Kelsey, as he looked like he was about to get tackled, laterals it back to Kadarius Toney, who catches the lateral and runs it in for a touchdown. Everyone's going crazy. It looked like an unbelievable play from an impartial observer. Uh, And then you find out there was a flag. They call offsides, which you think would be on the defense, as it usually is. But instead, it was offsides on the offense. And that is not called very often at all. Now, they show the replay, and Kadarius Toney clearly lined up offsides. It was not really even a question as to whether or not he was offsides. But... So the touchdown ends up being negated and Buffalo ends up getting the stop on the replay of second down, third down and fourth down. And they end up winning the football game after the game. Patrick Mahomes was screaming at the officials. Uh, He and Andy Reid made some comments after the game about how they thought that it was a detriment to the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to give everyone's reactions to the call and to the comments made by Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid after the game. Sydney, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, it was interesting. This was something that we had talked a lot about just throughout the day, even in classes. But one interview that really stuck out with me, they actually interviewed um, – one of the refs who was on the field and they say with this being a focus kind of in the rules this season in terms of making sure that, you know, they're lined up correctly. A lot of times the refs, if they see that their foot's a little bit over, they'll kind of help remind the players, especially as they're implementing it this season. But he felt like his foot was so far over the line that it was something that should be called. And, you know, it was tough. I hate to see a game 
kind of, I don't want to say be decided by that because I also believe that there's so many other parts of the games that they could have done better. And once it came down to that play, but it's a tough call nonetheless. But if you're Patrick Mahomes, I understand you're frustrated, but you have to start looking internally. You know, there's areas that are clearly leading to those losses. And it's not a time to point fingers when you're upset. It's a time to kind of take ownership and show the leader that you are. And I think if anything, people are just a little disappointed by his response. And I understand he's a competitor. That's why he's one of the best of the best. But in that moment, it's, you have to kind of internalize what your team needs to improve on because they're a better team than their record right now. Yeah, uh, good points there, especially on the uh, leadership thing. Um, you know, they there was a, a video I saw that kind of contrasted Jared, uh, Jared Allen, Josh Allen's response when they lost in the playoffs. Um, I don't know if it was last year or the year before or whatever, and it was you know heartbreaking, obviously, with with the way it played out. And he went over and gave Patrick Mahomes a big hug, told him congratulations, and walked off. Versus um, this year, where Patrick Mahomes was complaining about the call to Josh Allen instead of just saying, "Hey, good game, congratulations, best of luck," uh, which is what you normally do, and it comes across very much like being a sore loser to be honest with you uh but griffin we're going to go to you as the resident buffalo bills fan um i I can't imagine where you stand on this but um your your reaction to uh the whole situation well i was very glad that that was the call on the field because i was watching the game with my family and i was like screaming like Kadarius tony's offsides like as the play was about to happen i was like this I, i don't even know why the play even ensued to begin with then everything happens, and the, the aspect of all of the backlash that I, I just don't really understand from the Chiefs' point of view is there was still time left on the clock, so they continued to act like they had the game, they won, seal sign delivered, which they still had an opportunity to win with the ball after the play got turned back, but then you had a batted ball, and then fourth down they didn't convert. So you had a chance there. And also, who's to say, even if that place stood, that Josh Allen wouldn't have marched down the field by the way he was playing and win. We saw the adverse of that two years ago in the playoffs when we lost after 13 seconds, they get the field goal, and then you lose in overtime. So the aspect of like, oh, we got cheated out of a game doesn't make sense. Also, for Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes and the narrative that they felt cheated out of a game or that it was too ticky-tack of a call to be Uh, placed at that point in the game for it to be decided that way well then you can't win a Super Bowl from a year ago against your Philadelphia Eagles then because they won on a ticky-tack play on a pass interference from James Bradbury so then if Super Bowl revoked then yeah then then we'll take that back I will take it it's just it's funny to think how Again, the Chiefs have caught a lot of breaks that is not taking anything away from them I do have a lot of respect for the Chiefs overall But now that one thing doesn't go your way, to see this side of Patrick Mahomes, who's supposed to be the face of the league, have a temper tantrum on the sidelines, like, I, again, going into this, I had the utmost respect for him. It did get knocked down a few pegs after seeing him act that way, specifically to Josh Allen afterwards, because they do have a great relationship. And you can't even have the courtesy to, like, say something, even just soak up your pride for just a second and say congrats to your friend and then go back on your high horse. I'm okay with that. But the aspect of the Chiefs narrative doesn't really add up. They are accepting that it was a flag, but they just don't want it to be called in that spot. Not really how life works. And it's on Kadarius Tony because he should have looked at the official, 
would have been told that he needed to move back about a foot and a half. And then the play would have happened. And who's to say that it would have happened that way again. So I think there is a lot that can be said about that. Um, But overall, I just don't really see how you can be that upset if you're the chiefs. Josh, your thoughts. Um, well, Hey, as well, Cindy's in the world, but even Jordan Love looks great as a, Owner of a five and eight, I'm not with Johnson. As a fan of a five and eight team, I just um get mad at you guys complaining about you know this winning season and being in the playoff hunt. General, I feel like a little bit of spoiling going on. But um, Griffin hit the nail on the head. Honestly, it was kind of whatever to see Patty kind of throw a timber tantrum. I personally feel like that could have been more of a breaking point with the disappointment and frustration with the receivers, um, than the actual call and just kind of the upsetness with the referee was a way to get that out. But um, yeah, that wasn't the best. That wasn't the best guy that's on like really every other NBC commercial. That wasn't the right way to behave. Um, the Kendarius Tony actually did look at the referee. I saw the video on Twitter, but he did not confirm with the referee if he was on side. So what are you even looking over at the ref for to see? Um, here's the thing. Buffalo needed that game. We talked about it, Griffin. Buffalo needed that game way more than Kansas City did, even though Kansas City is backsliding. Um, I think Josh Allen played like he wanted that game more. So, yeah, the actual call itself, definitely ticky-tack. But, like, you made a great point. Yeah, Super Bowls have been one-off ticky-tack calls. You know, until we get AI officials, human error is going to be a part of, you know, officiating in all sports. So just get over it. Um, but, no, nah, it is pretty, pretty um, you know, it is weird to see the Chiefs, what, we're, we're 14 weeks in the season, and they look very mortal. So I think that this is just another sign of that, honestly. A Buffalo team that hasn't looked great themselves and has their own, um, I guess, inner turmoil in terms of offensive ineptity to a certain extent, um, beat up on Kansas City in Kansas City. So, yeah, I think that, you know, this is just isn't a, team, a chief team that is, hasn't been as good as it's been the past couple of years. And I think that the frustration with Pat and Andy Reid is kind of manifesting out. Right now. Yeah, so two things. One, um, you know, the narrative that, we don't want the officials to decide the games. We want the players to decide the games. If you commit a penalty and it's called, the player is deciding the game because you committed a penalty. It's this narrative that in the final two minutes of a game, it's like all of a sudden penalties don't exist and you don't call it unless it's blatant. I think you should call it the same way you've called it the rest of the game. Now, Dan Orlovsky went on ESPN and did make a comment that Hey, I saw Kadarius Tony line up offsides five different times before that play, and it wasn't called. Okay, so they got away with something five times, and then it was finally called. About Jawan Taylor early in the season with the with the KC, right? Right. So, like, I I get that, and you can have a discussion about the consistency of officiating. I said the same thing with the Super Bowl call last year on James Bradbury that led to. Uh, Kansas City being able to run out the clock instead of Jalen Hurts having a chance to go down and score a game-winning touchdown. I said, is what James Radbury did technically defensive holding? Yes. However, they had allowed that contact to go all game, and therefore, in the context of that game, I didn't think that was being called that penalty. And now Kansas City can make that same argument for this one. You've allowed it all game. You can't all of a sudden call it now. But for Kansas City to act like now that should be the case, last year it should not because it won them a Super Bowl, is a little bit disingenuous and I was very disappointed that they tried to make the case that this is bad for football in general because we happen to be on the losing end of it. I thought that was very arrogant, very um, self-serving and it showed a lack of leadership on Patrick Mahomes part. Um, it showed 
And especially from from Andy Reid, as a Philadelphia Eagles fan who has a ton of respect for Andy Reid, rooted for him in the Super Bowls that he didn't play against Philadelphia because I like him and and think he's a great coach. A little disappointed that that was the reaction, um, especially from him. And, you know, I think we're we're starting to see a different side of Patrick Mahomes, as as Griffin alluded to, that is not something a lot of people are are fans of. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts his public image moving forward. But that'll do it for episode 95 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast for Sydney Griffin and Josh. I'm Mike McAllister, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.